Okay, welcome back to our fourth summary podcast, The Vanishing American Adult by Senator and uh, PhD holding historian Ben Sass. Just to summarize, this is the section where Sass is talking about the unique and specific challenges that are more than just general angst about the younger generation or the, the worst or toxic effects, a focus on the toxic effects of the generation that came before us that are facing this generation of children becoming adults. He's gone over the idea that there is a far softer kids now, softer mentally and softer literally physically in the, in the weight epidemic in the country, a massive amount of increase in screen time, a more pornography availability and ingestion, more years under the parent's roof and under the care of, uh, of parental uh, uh, parental authority, less marriage, less religious participation, less awareness of civic uniqueness and value, um, more intellectually fragile and maleducated, if educated at all. And now we're on the next one, softer parenting or no parenting at all. Although well-meaning, our indulgent practices, Sass says, have tended to encourage complacency amongst our pampered offspring. After spending the better part of two decades micromanaging and choreographing playdates, dance practices, extra tutoring for standardized tests and college entrance exams, music lessons, martial arts, select soccer and travel baseball, track meets, swim meets, art classes, language enrichment, and all the rest, it should come as no surprise that the kids have only the vaguest idea of how to make decisions for themselves. All that many of them have ever had to do by age 18 is be dressed and at the car at the appointed hour. So who birthed softer parenting? None of these societal worries and philanthropic responses fully explain the changed parenting practices inside families that were not impoverished. Parenting made, parents made actual choices that drove the increasingly permissive shepherding of the young. What drove this? In short, Dr. Benjamin Spock and his like-minded peers, who told parents that the emerging pure culture they feared wasn't that fearsome after all. School was not only about in-classroom learning for a potential productivity job after graduation. It was also, or even primarily, a social hub. Quote, when a teenage majority spent the better part of their day in high school, they learned to look to one another and not adults for advice, information, and approval, observes cultural historian Grace Palladino. Quote, and when they got a glimpse of the freedom and social life that the high school crowd, quote, enjoyed, they revolutionized the very concept of growing up. Post-war prosperity and generational segregation in the schools allowed this youth culture to flower. Marketers and retailers discovered it <clears throat> before most other observers, as it turned out that teens had a lot of their parents' money to spend. Television and rock and roll arrived on the scene. Teenagers began setting trends and changing tastes. Instead of adolescence being conceived of as an apprenticeship stage and route to adult life and responsibilities, increasingly teen culture became the model or ideal in American life, and this was brand new, tragically new. Psychologists such as Jean Piaget, Abraham Maslow, and Eric Erickson sought to reassure parents that everything was going to be fine, that they were doing a better job than they even understood. They encouraged Americans to spend quality time together, to reassure their their children of their parents' love for them, in short, to make children the center of adult attention all the time. Eric Erickson urged an understanding of adolescence as an introspective time for individuals to explore and develop their own unique identities. Parents did not need to direct this exploration. Assure your offspring of your tenderness, he said, but allow them to wander. No one was more important to the emergence of this new parenting perspective on nurture than Benjamin Spock, 1903 to 1998. 
one of the best-selling authors in history. Dr. Spock, quote, wanted to liberate both the mothers and their children from worries about kids' increasing reliance on their peers. He advised against, quote, excessive mothering and suggested that teens would be fine without excessive expertise from the authority figures of older and older hierarchical society. His advice on child-rearing shaped the attitudes of a generation of parents and normalized the emergence of a segregated youth culture increasingly, quote, freed from older expectations of rigor and economic productivity. As teen culture ascended, American youth began to find a wider popular culture that catered to them as independent consumers rather than subordinates in their parents' households. An urgency about learning to produce before one consumed slackened. Traditional permissive versus strict parenting models. And aside for the late Neil Postman, Neil Postman is arguably the most prescient analyst of the transformation of the American childhood in his astounding, I would add, amusing ourselves to death, public discourse in an age of show business. Although three decades old remains a must-read on the trivialization of American culture and the evaporation of shared ideals. But Postman's general point in The Disappearance of Childhood and other works is that in the mid-20th century, white parents began adding a good and needed bit of nurture to the older ideals of objectively toughening up their kids for an adulthood of self-sufficiency. In addition, most of us radically understate the degree to which visual media, first television, now everything, eroded thoughtful childhood. The disappearance of childhood is traceable directly, Postman insists, to the rise of electronic media. What separated childhood from adulthood previously was a secret or guarded knowledge about full adult reality that was understandable only by through literacy and reading. Adults knew much better than children did <clears throat> uh, things about sex and money and violence and death, but mainly sex. In a literate culture, secrets are kept in books. If you wanted to know what those hidden secrets were, you had to be able to navigate books or have a conversation with someone outside of your generation. Learning how to read and act of a budding adult was a prerequisite to acquiring this new knowledge. Because reading takes work, self-discipline was at the heart of gaining access to the complex adult worlds that were seen as desirable. Television changed all of that because of its total disclosure medium, quote-unquote, operating around the clock, demanding and broadcasting a nonstop supply of new and titillating information. Practically nothing is taboo or off-limits. Because television doesn't know or care who's watching, the medium effectively adultifies children while infantilizing adults. It doesn't judge its viewers. Nothing is shameful. Postman argues that childhood's innocence is lost and the idea of shame becomes diluted and demystified. Deliberate adulthood was turned into an affliction to be avoided, even a joke. We are thus left with a nation not only of childish adults, but also adult children. Quote, without a clear concept of what it means to be an adult, there can be no clear concept of what it means to be a child. As so-called adults become ever more childlike, neither child nor adult knows how to transition, not just biologically, but socially and morally from a child to adult. Everyone ends up confused and dissatisfied. Paradoxically, even as America was becoming even more child-centered, childhood, quote, itself was beginning to disappear. Everywhere one looks, Neil Postman wrote, the behavior, language, attitude, and desires, even the physical appearance of adults and children are becoming increasingly indistinguishable. Skinny jeans and pastors, right? We've talked about the sometimes useful ways of thinking about one's life in stages. The ancient Athenian statesman Solon divided human life into ten seven-year stages— the first seven years a boy is the man unripe. For the second seven, his, quote, signs of approaching manhood show in the bud as he learns self-control. From age 14 to 21, he completes his physical development. From 21 to 28, he is at the lifetime height of his strength. In his fifth seven years, he is best positioned to marry and to reproduce and so on. 
Salon had a precise view about how long a man should continue to seek workplace guidance from his elders, as well as when he would himself be best suited to run the show, basically in, one late, in one's late 40s and early 50s. After age 63, according to Salon, he should acknowledge his decline, his slower speech and fading wit, and hand over leadership roles. Chapter 3. More school isn't enough. To reiterate, nearly a quintupling of the federal spending over 30 years has produced nothing quantifiably better in the area of education. John Dewey's influence over the student. Dewey's philosophy that the only real outcome should be social productivity, no moral virtue training, image over literature, picture over word. He was also family skeptical. He was atheistic, no God, no soul, so only here and now, and had a utopian vision of implementation in a piecemeal fashion is, can hardly be understated. That's John Dewey's influence over our educational system. The question is, is his vision and the funding for it working? No. Reading and literacy is abysmal. Critical thinking is at an all-time low. Math and science have regressed. John Taylor Gatto, who taught for 30 years in the public <clears throat> junior high schools of Manhattan's Upper West Side, named New York City's Teacher of the Year in 1990 and then New York State's Teacher of the Year in 1991, said this, Everyone should annually ask again and again, do we really need school, he urged. The answer is probably yes, but if so, you should be able to explain why and what for. Too often, and for too many kids, he worried, school accidentally becomes a 12-year jail sentence where bad habits are the only curriculum truly learned. Quote, teaching means different things in different places, he said, but seven lessons are universally taught from Harlem to Hollywood in our cookie-cutter schools. The main consequences for students are emotional confusion, social class disparity, indifference, passivity, intellectual dependency on experts, conditional self-esteem, and surveillance by those in charge. Our, quote, young people are indifferent to the adult world and to the future, indifferent to almost everything except the diversion of toys and violence, Rich or poor, school children who face the 21st century cannot concentrate on anything very long. They have a poor sense of time past and time to come. Unfortunately, centralized education bureaucrats tend to see every failure as a product of still not enough centralized bureaucracy over the education by way of curriculum and output <clears throat> and implementation. They fail to acknowledge the Socratic insight that at a certain age, learning cannot be force-fed. It needs to come in response to genuinely asked questions by genuinely curious people. Experts can't educate your kids until the kids have the desire to be educated. We don't really care about learning, according to my anecdotal experience, until later when it's useful and not forced and formulaic. That's just part of my journey. Back to Sass. As Socrates taught, it is almost impossible to educate someone with an answer until he or she is invested in asking the question. At the risk of oversimplification, I think we are largely hoping to help them learn how to learn so that they can go out into life as autodidacts, that means self-teachers, now able to tackle a whole new set of challenges that will be thrown at them. We need to affirm and refine their agency. We need to help them develop their self-confidence, not as an emotional abstraction, but as a realistic assessment of their newfound abilities to navigate a world where nimbleness, inventiveness, perseverance, and grit will be demanded. How can juvenile people be expected to self-govern or to navigate an advertising-saturated market economy full of propaganda and untruths? How can they determine fact from opinion or what's been proven from what might be possible? What we need is the re-equipping of each child with those lost tools, the axe and the wedge, the hammer and the saw, the chisel and the plane, to construct a logical argument and to present coherent positions passionately. Quote, For the sole true end of education is simply this, 
to teach men how to learn for themselves, and whatever instruction fails to do this is an effort spent in vain. So it is with launching an adolescent into childhood. Nobody wants external training wheels, yet allowing our culture to devolve from one that encourages self-sufficiency into one that indulges in permanent dependency is to tolerate a disengagement of the soul akin to the permanent training wheels on a bike. Letting the next generation believe someone else will solve their problem imperils not only them, but the whole society.